Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to the YDS Fireside Chat Series, sponsored by the Spiritual Formation and Practice of Faith Committee. Since we cannot conduct these chats by the actual fireside in the common room this year, we are offering them as podcasts instead, with a special focus this spring on diverse faith traditions. These fireside chats invite faculty and students to share their faith stories with the YDS community. My name is Christy Stang. I'm a second year Master of Divinity student, and I am honored to be talking today with Abdul Rahman Malik, who is an associate research scholar and lecturer in Islamic studies here at YDS. Thank you so much, AR, for, for joining me this morning to have a conversation about your faith. Um, first off, just tell us a little bit about yourself. What's, what's your story? Um, well, first of all, uh, Christy, thank you so much for, um, for this opportunity. And, you know, I, uh, since coming to the Yale Divinity School, I have really appreciated those chances that I've had to speak with colleagues and students about their spiritual journey. And I think over the last three years, I've, um, I've been really introduced, I think, to this concept of spiritual formation, which is so central, I think, in, in, in so many Christian traditions and, and, and the way in which Christian traditions describe the, the, the processes by which we develop our spiritual muscles and by which we sort of um, feed and nourish our spiritual DNA. And it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a term that I've, I've really come to, come to love because I, I find it very expansive and generative um and really allows for a lot of a lot of emergence you know to use the 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 current woke lingo uh, a, a, a lot of new ways of, of of seeing ourselves as spiritual beings within this within this created world um i, I you know i'm the son of um immigrants uh, from uh pakistan my uh, father um uh, was born in British India uh, before the partition of the subcontinent in, in 19 uh, the sub the partition took place in 1947 my father was born a few years earlier than that and we came from a region of India called the Punjab it was only one of two regions in India that was divided in 1947 it was it was only one of two regions that was divided at the, uh, at the mm -hmm. partition of some subcontinent and I think that's important part of my story in the sense that both sides of my family, my mother's family uh, and my father's family, both became refugees. Um, they had to leave one side of Punjab, cross this new border into the other side of Punjab as Muslims, Hindus and Sikhs crossed this imaginary line, which now created two nations. I don't think the trauma of that experience was ever fully recognized in our family. And I mentioned this right at the top because I, I think in so many ways it's shaped my own story. Um, my beloved grandmother uh, passed away only two years ago. She was in her 90s. Mm -hmm. She was a teenager when partition happened. The young bride of my of my grandfather, uh, who had had a son from from a previous marriage, and his previous wife had passed away. And so there was my grandmother, you know, in her in her late teens, with a son, uh, you know, almost half her age, um, in my grandfather's village. And my grandfather wasn't there; he used to work in in Delhi, for the for the British Army. 
um, as a as a as a as an auditor and, and financial officer, and eventually worked in the Pakistan Army for for a short time in the same position. And they had to flee because the village next to theirs had been burned down and attacked, and many people had been murdered. And and you know, my grandmother didn't speak about that experience until much later in life and really at the prodding of her of her grandchildren who didn't live in Pakistan you know who uh, who came from Canada and wanted to ask all the big questions and and not realizing the trauma of this but my grandmother never shied away from speaking about it even though it made her sad and even though few asked her about it because moving from one side of Punjab to the other from India to Pakistan um, was really a part of a, a, a total reinvention of themselves and, and, and their lives. But there's something about this move, idea of movement mm-hmm. that, that I think has been a theme, you know, in my life and that I've been a witness to. You know, my, my grandfather was, was a refugee uh, and, 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 a, and, a, and an immigrant. My, his son, my father, left Pakistan in the late 60s after um, doing his commerce degree at the University of Lahore's uh, Haley College of, of Commerce. He was a political activist. Um, he went to Britain, and in Britain, I think he, he kind of became the fullness of himself, you know, independent and, and, and experiencing, you know, student life in the late 1960s and, and finding this kind of community of at that time would have been called, you know, third world students, you know, who are, who are all sort of engaged in speaking about the post-colonial reality and, 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 and you know, the, the, the movements for liberation. And uh, my dad became a, a bit of a hippie in 1969, so we call that his missing year. Um, we hear stories from time to time, but eventually ended up coming to Canada in 1971. Um, by accident, really, he was on his way to California and stopped in Toronto and never left. Um, and, and, you know, my mother joined him in 1973, and I was born in 1975. And so Toronto was really my first home, but I always lived with this uh, with this sense of being someone from many places. You know, the the joke was that you know um, folks like me have our two feet in four places at the same time. Mm. The idea of being able to switch between languages, cultures, is so natural. You know, uh, the the code switching. Um, you know, uh, that that we often talk about now is a term given to something that I felt like I always did, you know, I was always switching codes and I was always, you know, negotiating my my brownness, my Muslimness, my child of immigrantness, my minority-ness um, in, a, in, a, in a place, Toronto, that of course now is so multicultural, but it wasn't always uh, like that. And, you know, we saw Toronto and, and, and the greater Toronto area change so much so that now it's a visible, um, you know, minority majority city, right? It, it, it mm-hmm. is a, a city of incredible diversity. The United Nations says the most diverse city on the planet. Oh, and, yeah. and, and, you know, faith was such an important part of that feeling of being present in many places at the same time because the the mosque that I went to growing up was one of a few mosques in Toronto at the time now there's dozens as the community has grown so much but when we went to the Jami mosque it was a 
it was a, it was largely a Sunni mosque, but the congregants were from Pakistan and Bangladesh and India and Nigeria and Sri Lanka and Guyana and, and Trinidad and Jamaica. And they were from Malaysia and Indonesia and there were Bosnian Muslims and Albanian Muslims and Croatian uh, um, uh, Muslims. And there were Muslims who were converts and there was Muslims who were African-American and descendants of uh, people who were uh, brought to these shores and chains. And in a way the, the mosque modeled this kind of global community bound by faith. And so it wasn't unusual for us to have an imam who was Sudanese or the imam uh, in the mosque that I went to growing up was of, of, uh, of, um, of partial Jamaican extraction, uh, African-American, was a draft dodger who had fled the Vietnam War and come to Canada in the early 1970s and eventually went to study in, in Saudi Arabia and returned and became the imam of our, of our community. And, and through people like him, you know, we were, we were exposed to, you know, um, West African culture and, 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 and history. Imam Bilal, who was another imam in our community, was African-American uh, imam who had settled in Canada and, and he was uh, connected with the community of Imam W.D. Muhammad, which was the community that, that came after the, the, the death of Elijah Muhammad and, and was a breakaway from the nation of Islam. Many would say that they, he took the nation of Islam closer to what might be termed uh, you know, Sunni Islam or the, sometimes the word orthodox is used. And I say it in inverted commas because I, I have more trouble with those terms now, orthodox, normative, and so on. Um, but you know, these were the kind, this is the kind of place I grew up in. And, and for me, that shaped who I was. What also shaped who I was, uh, Christy, and is deeply tied to my religious identity and my faith identity was the politics of the day. You know, the mid 1970s mm -hmm. was the oil crisis. Mm -hmm. it, was, yeah. um, it was a pivotal moment in, in the struggle for, for Palestinian rights and recognition. It was a time of incredible uh, violence, uh, the growth of terror violence. Um, both um, non-state and state-sanctioned. It was a time when we saw Lebanon kind of exploding into a situation that would eventually become civil war. Through the 80s, we witnessed the bombing of Libya by the Reagan administration. Um, we, I, I, I felt like as a young child, my earliest memories of the world were the Iranian revolution. And I was in a house in suburban Toronto. It was because for my parents, these events were not far away. They were immediate. It was the conversation in our home. When the uncles and aunties would come over for tea, that's what they would talk about. And, and of course, tied up in all of that was our relationship with the mosque, was my father's own politics, which were deeply inspired by, uh, by at that time, and he's come a long way since then, uh, but were at that time inspired by, by you know, um, you know, uh, political thinkers who were fusing Islam and politics. So I never saw my religion as merely a confession. Prayer was important in our house. We read the Quran together. My mother first taught me the Quran, then the aunties who I used to go to. We used to go to mosque Saturday and Sunday. Um, you know, during the month of Ramadan, the mosque was like 40 minutes away from our house, but we'd be at the mosque, you know, every night in the month of Ramadan for the extra prayers and so on. So like, like it, things were deeply tied to community, but in the background, we were hearing what was happening around the world. I remember the, 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 the winter. It's one of my earliest memories, Christy, 
um, of, of like of myself and my family was the day after Christmas, Boxing Day 1979, um, the Russians invaded Afghanistan. And I remember it was that day or the day after we were on the streets of Toronto. I must I was only four or five years old. But the memory of being there and hearing the chants, Russians out of Afghanistan, right? Soviet empire out of Afghanistan. This idea that this place so far away felt so close. And, you know, in the 1980s, as a young man, I would meet some of the leaders of the Mujahideen movement who were supported by the United States government, who fought against uh, the Russian empire in, in Afghanistan. And I was like, you know, I, I met these people. I, I, I kind of touched them. I spoke to them. They, they mentioned things. And so for me, faith was always wrapped up in the cause of a, of a just world. Mm-hmm. And it was never separate. I, I can't imagine. I, I, I don't even think about faith that way because it was always it was always connected. And then my name, I think, also was a. You know, you don't realize sometimes how how formative one's name is. I think we all yeah. go through that moment where yeah. where we yeah. figure out that our names <laughs> connect us to ancestors. That right. there's a story behind it. You know, my name Abdurrahman. Um, means slave or servant of, of the merciful and the merciful being one of the attributes of of the divine and you know in, in the Islamic conception of God which is which is radically monotheistic the, it is these names these attributes that give us access to understanding God and so the most oft-repeated attribute of God in the Quran the most oft-repeated attributes in the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad is God referred to as Rahman, is God referred to as the merciful. And so mercy is sort of this emblematic principle operating force within the Islamic tradition. To be merciful is to connect yourself to the merciful. And and I think my, I know when I've asked my parents why they named me that, because, because it doesn't follow along the other names in our family. There's actually a pattern with the sons in on my on my father's side of the family, which all refer to actually the the the, the prophet, and and so each of the names is a is a reflection of of kind of service to to the to the prophet. But but I, I kind of broke that cycle, and I think you know for my for my mother it was really like they lived in such a. Um, you know, it was a difficult time. It was they lived in a studio apartment in downtown Toronto where kids weren't allowed when I was born, and eventually I had to leave because they said, "Look, you got a child, you can't have children here." It was that kind of that kind of time, right? The nineteen seventies, and and you know, um, it, you know, my father was an accountant, which sounds great, but you know, I, I think back on it, and, you know, it was it was the it was the middle class hustle. And, uh, and, you know, the recessions didn't help and so on. And I think, you know, I'm born yeah, into sure. this place. My mother just didn't have her family around her. There was this new family, you know, of, of aunties and uncles. And when I say that, they're not blood relations. You know, they became like blood to us. And, and I think for my, for my mom, you know, the, the name um, Abdurrahman or, or slave servant of the merciful was a way of saying, you know, the world is mad. And we're going to need, and you're going to need um, a lot of mercy in your life. 
um, to get through. So we're going to give you a name that always reminds you of that. And I think that's in some ways, that's in some ways why I was given that name. And, and I'm very, very thankful for it. So, so it, 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 you know, to talk that language of formation, you know, I think it's interesting that how much of our spiritual formation begins in our spiritual DNA in the ways in which we understand, interpret, and reflect, you know, on our, on our own origin stories. And, and, and for me, because religion became, was so active, it was about, of course, ritual and practice and learning, learning, reading, we read voraciously. We have thousands of books at home. I grew up with a home library in languages I couldn't read: Arabic, Farsi, Urdu, Punjabi. You know, my father would, mother would read to us in those languages and translate when we didn't need to know. My spoken Urdu is pretty good. My understanding of Punjabi is good, but I'm functionally illiterate. I can't read or write really well in in any other language other than English. Um, and and so, you know, I think. I think that that idea of of learning was really important, and and spiritual learning was was important, but it was never, it was it, spiritual learning was never was never a reason to push away the other books, books mm-hmm. of literature, uh, books about politics, and I and I read voraciously, and and I think I think that was also really important. This idea of being able to sit and engage with text. You know, I remember uh, my mom and I, when I was probably like 12 or 13, 14, we used to sit some nights with the Quran and I'd open up to sections that I was interested in and read the translation and just, and, 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 and the Arabic and, and this just try to talk it out, you know, uh, without a reference to a scholar or a scholastic work, you know, so this idea of engaging. Now that to my Christian friends is so normal but there's something about the Muslim engagement with the Quran that is different because mm. our understanding of the Quran is that it is the word of God revealed through the, uh, through the agency of the Archangel Gabriel to the heart and soul and body of the Prophet Muhammad and then given voice in the Arabic language. And so this revealed as an Arabic Quran, but that the Quran itself is it, it, the, 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 the revelation is itself a representation of the words of God, which, mm-hmm. which it abide with God in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the formal Sunni understanding of, of that, you know, this is, it's, it's often called the uncreated speech of God. So this is essentially part of, a part of the divine that is now being given to us. And so the way that Muslims approach revelation in some ways is so different than my Christian friends approach the Bible, um, where the study and reading of the Bible as a text that is God inspired, but has such a a strong human element to it that one then engages with the humanity of it. For the Muslim, we're engaging with the text for the divinity of it, right? Mm-hmm. In, in, that, in that as we speak and recite the words of the Quran, it's we are mimicking, uh, uh, literally mimicking the angel Gabriel themselves mm-hmm. in the utterance to the prophet 
who then yeah. gives it to his community, right? And and that that means that the 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 way that a confessional Muslim uh, approaches the Quran is so different. Now, yeah. this of course has 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 of course it's it's it's, it's part there's a, there's kind of a beautiful sacredness to that act, but there's also then I I, I mean I'll, very frankly there's a problem that how do we make this text relevant for ourselves in the time that we live in? Because the text, of course, even though it's revealed in Arabic at a certain period of time, um, you know, um, not aspires to, but says that it is, it is, it is timeless. And, and in some ways for all contexts. And so this idea of building this kind of engagement with the Quran I think is a challenge for 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 many Muslims, and I and I and I really honor. And I don't think my parents were doing it like as part of like a a theological plan, right? I don't think they <laughs> they had a theological pedagogy that they were they were trying to impart. But I think they were I lucky enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but I think you know we had we had you know we had curriculum at the at the, in the mosque. We had mm -hmm. teachers who would mm -hmm. take us through you know texts and and through topics, of course. But, but I think it was also, it was part of their own training that their own teachers from Pakistan were teachers who deeply engaged the Quran in, in context and, and often, often politically. Um, and, I think, and I think that was something that was really respected and honored in, in our house. So, so I was, I, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to, to, to see the Quran as a, as a kind of a living, breathing uh, text while engaging of course, and acknowledging and, and, and hopefully trying to live out the sacredness um, of the of the text as of the text as well. And I, you know, that led to a lot of activity, you know, there was a lot of activity in the mosque. So, you know, I, I started a youth newspaper, we, we had uh, youth, youth, youth gatherings, um, my, my father would force me on Sunday mornings to and drag me out to the to the uh, study circle that would happen for the um, for the uh, for the adult males, there was a study circle that happened for for the adult uh, women as well on on Sunday morning, and it would happen in two parts of the mosque, and each way you know had Quran readings, and they would have their own tutors, and people would go through text, and they would read the life of the prophet, and so on and so forth, but none of the other kids had to come. That's all I have to say. The other <laughs> kids were in like study school classes, or their classes were after you know. The afternoon prayer and I used to join them. They would play in the park on Sunday morning, but no, I, I had three hours, uh, as as long as I can remember, of sitting with the adults. And you know, at the time, it was it may have been painful at moments, but I look back on it, and it was a training that has served me really well um, in my life. The ability to sit someplace for a long period of time. To sit someplace and not even understand the language, you know, I've, I, you know, this idea yeah. that I can sit and people are speaking Arabic and I pick a little bit up, or if people are speaking Bengali, like my my wife's family, and, and I pick a little bit of it up, or people are, you know, speaking Wolof or Swahili, and and I pick very little of it up, but I I I I, I have this kind of ability just to sit and to listen and to observe and and understand the cadence and right. and and that is really goes back to those study circles right the ability just to sit for three hours and to, just to be mm, present just to be just to be there and, and you know your legs are hurting and you're we're sitting cross-legged on the ground is you know the traditional way and, mm -hmm. 
felt that. And, and, you know, I think my own sort of political consciousness grew, um, you know, through grade school into high school. Um, and, and I think uh, my, my sense of my own, my own faith as really being present in the world also grew, you know, being a Muslim was not merely being a religious person, but it was to be a political body and a political figure. And, you know, this is in the way pre 9-11, but didn't matter really, because, you know, I think this, that, that, you know, uh, in Canada where I grew up and here in the United States and elsewhere, world politics, empire, colonization, the post-colonial and decolonial movements, all meant that there was a history of empire, which, which, you know, as Edward Said has described and, and Orientalism and others have, have, have elucidated there's a deep animus, I think, towards Islam and Muslims and the Arab world and the Middle East, which came up at various points in time. And I, and I saw that, you know, I think I was witness to that mm. throughout my, throughout my entire life. And, and I think part of that, I was, I was on a bit of a kick to, to kind of dispel, you know, dispel misunderstandings. And I think I was eager in my in my youth for a time you know to spread the good word not in a kind of a missionary way but to introduce people to the reality of islam but my father you know worked with jews and christians and all kinds of people i remember uh, being young and going to the houses of of um, fellow accountants to my dad uh i have a we have this joke that i said as a as a dad you 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 since you got, since you chose accounting and auditing as your profession, I said you have either worked with Sicilian Italians, or or Jewish people, and he's like, you're absolutely right because you know in in Toronto, and this is a bit of an a, a bit of an aside, Toronto was known in the 1970s as Hogtown. This was, I mean, largely speaking, you know, a wasp town. It was white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. The Irish had been grudgingly accepted at, at some point. But in the early 1970s, if you were in a profession, there were a lot of doors that were still really closed. And the thought that my dad could get a job in an Anglo firm was almost unheard of. Where people of color went were either to Italian firms or to Jewish firms. And my dad worked for a lot of Jewish firms. And his mentors were all elderly Jewish accountants. And I think for my father coming from Pakistan, where he wouldn't have engaged with Jewish people uh, in England, where it would have been limited, you know, he had this amazing and massive education, you know, ending up at, yeah. at Seder dinners. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and for us as, as young people going to the houses of, of, of my father's Jewish partners for, um, you know, for high holidays or, or for, for other celebrations, uh, you know, uh, gave me a sense very early of, of, around religious difference, but, but also how to engage that, 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 that difference. And, you know, in grade school, I remember, I remember, you know, uh, this is the old days when in public school, they used to celebrate things like Easter. And I went to, I went to public schools, public schools, state schools all my life. Um, uh, I remember, you know, I, and there was a guy named Charles and he was Jewish and I, I was Muslim. And I think we were the only two non-Christians in the class, at least those who said so. And I remember we were, we were marking Easter and uh, Charles was, you know, even as a young guy, I mean, it was, it was probably grade, it was probably grade five. 
Oh, okay. And yeah. and he was he was a bit outraged. He's like, why are we celebrating Easter? What about Passover? What about the uh, the other holidays? Don't you have holidays? I said, yes, I do. And so Charles and I um, uh, took this to our parents, and Charles's parents came and spoke to the teacher, and my parents came and spoke, and uh, you know, um, we celebrated Passover that year in our class, and we celebrated Eid in our class. And I remember my dad and mom coming in and cooking special foods from the Eid time. And my dad had an old, uh, had an old like, oh, you know, those films, like real films, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and he had, he had, he had collected a few from, from like looking at the Hajj and, and so brought those in and we loaded them onto the school's uh, film projector and, and he showed, you know, uh, the footage of the, of the, of the Hajj and, and, you know, it was like, it was like a very proud moment, you know, that we were bringing our faith and our culture and introducing it to, to, to friends and colleagues in the classroom. So yeah. there's always this sense of living in an interreligious world, right? That's, that's part awesome. of the, yep. that's part of the, that's part of the spiritual DNA, my own spiritual DNA. And, and, you know, being, being a racial minority and being a religious minority, of course, you got to do that. I mean, it's just, this is like, this is this, basic tools for living. Um, you know, you have to know how to engage interreligious difference. But alongside that, you also have to be careful and cautious, at least for me, around what does that difference mean? You know, I don't care what it means for anyone else, to be honest. But it has, what does it mean for me? Is it, is it a source of superiority? Is it, uh, is it a, 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 is it a source of spiritual arrogance? And and I think there was a period in my life when, where where those kinds of messages, you know, through the mosque or youth circles were were promoted, and I think there was something triumphant about that. You know, when we watch a debate between a prominent Muslim scholar of the Bible and a televangelist, I remember there was this. Oh. I think there's this great debate in the 1980s that happened. I want to say between Jimmy Swaggart. The televangelist okay. and and Ahmed Didat, who is a South African-born uh, preacher, basically a, a Muslim version of a of an evangelist for the Quran. Right. And I remember that these videos would circulate, and I'm, I have this I have this very strong memory, and it's it's a memory I kind of cringe at now, but I'll share it with you anyways. Um, <laughs> and 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 in full disclosure. Um, I remember it was, you know, we were at one of the Islamic schools. There was full-time Islamic school by the time the, the, the 80s, late 80s rolled around. And we were at a youth camp for the weekend. And it was great. It was run by people who I still love and know. And, uh, you know, we've all been on a journey. Uh, so this is a snapshot of, 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 of a world that's changed. But I remember one night, they, you know, we made popcorn, you know, in the, in the kitchen of the school. And we said, okay, it's movie night. So what are we watching? We're watching Ahmadidat versus Jimmy Swagger. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, Christy, it sounds, it, sounds, it, might, it sounds weird, maybe a little odd. But we had our popcorn. We had our fruit juice. We had sweets. And we, watched, and we watched this film of a, of a religious debate. And you know why we were watching? Because even today, I watched it again recently, just to remind me of what I had mm-hmm. seen. The Muslim preacher basically wipes the floor with Jimmy Swagger. 
and 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 the and the whole and the whole thing is about is is the Bible God's word? Like Swagger is just a bad debater, right? Because because yeah, to be okay. honest, it just it's very pedestrian um, kind of uh, religious analysis, and and his mm -hmm. Muslim uh, opponent knows that and just exploits it. Yeah. But but I remember watching that with this group of young men, you know, at, at the Islamic school, eating yeah. popcorn. Oh, you need and the popcorn for that. And feel, <laughs> feeling triumphant, Christy. It was like, you know, every time Didat would score a point, we'd all go, ha ha, high five. We got them, man. We got the Christians on the run. I love that. And, and, it's like and, the Super Bowl. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, to me now I cringe at that because I, I think the ethics of it are so wrong. And I think what it mm. teaches is so wrong, but I also understand it in our context. When you feel like a minority, when you feel unseen, unrecognized, when the politics of the world continuously cites Muslimness and violence, then you're looking for something that's going to take you out of that. And and it's gonna is gonna show you your faith and the tradition that you come from and the people who you hold dear as being triumphant. Yeah. And so and so is that triumphalism. And I and I've I I'm glad I had that experience because because it is so not the experience we're trying to give our son <laughs> of living in a multi multi-faith world. But we're talking about formation. I think part of that is 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 part of and to to use kind of that Marxist language is the dialectic of formation, yeah. that we are we are constantly engaged in this dialectic, aren't we? That 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 these ideas are put forward, and then we embrace them until they're challenged, and then we step out of it, and then we challenge it ourselves, and we right. realize that that you know sometimes it's 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 um, it's neither nor you know, and there's another place that we need to go. And another, right. and and I think you know this this kind of dialectic of our lives needs to be constant. The dialectic can't stop. You know, the constant challenging that we need to do, you know, for ourselves, I think is really is really vital and and, and important. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you've you've brought up so many powerful themes in telling your story: the movement and spiritual formation and identities and this dynamic of the politics going along with the prayer. And um, one other element that I'm, I'm curious to hear from you about is, is how your academic work is informed by your, your life of faith. I'd be curious to hear you reflect a little bit about that. I, I mean, I feel like a unicorn um, at YDS as I've expressed to many of my colleagues. Um, yeah. You know, I come at this um, and, I'm, and I'm really, I feel privileged and thankful and honored that, you know, the school and my colleagues, uh, you know, have seen the value um, of having someone like myself, who really, you know, these days they have these terms like professor of practice or teacher mm -hmm. of practice, you know, and and you know, my I, when I went to university, um, I entered university in nineteen ninety three. Um, uh, I went to the University of Toronto. Uh, I thought I'd do global affairs, international relations, and failed first year economics, so that wasn't going to fly. Mm -hmm. um, I had wanted to be a lawyer. I used to tell people I would be the first Muslim prime minister of Canada. Um, and so I got very active in, in political work and joined a political party, like the Young Democrats, and, and was very active in, in, in politics and ran campaigns and, and developed that kind of 
organizing muscle very early <laughs> in my in my life. And and you know, I think through my late years of high school, I really questioned religion. Um, mm. There was a crisis in our mosque community um, in the early years of high school, and our mosque, the mosque that I've been to all my life, broke apart um, and then broke apart again. And so all of a sudden, this one institution, which contained all these multitudes, became three institutions, and people started to scatter. and And that was a real traumatic moment. Actually, it was a real kind of unveiling of of you know the human human frailties of people who I trusted and and loved and and really looked up to. And I think in many ways that that really just gave me you know I was yeah I kind of gave I kind of I kind of took a step back. And uh, I remember prayer became very difficult and I didn't go to Friday prayers. We used to have Friday prayers at our school because we had like three Muslim students and we'd pray together on Fridays. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, you know, we'd have a room open to us for daily prayers, which is always, which is very nice. Um, it was a nurse's office actually. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think I struggled um, with faith and community and I got involved in a lot of other things. You know, I, I got involved in the, high school model united nations and i got involved in um mm -hmm. competitive debating and and uh um you know one of the few kudos that i can attach to my name is that i was the i was the top ranked high school debater in in, in canada in my graduating year of high school <laughs> does um, not surprise me and so it was it was great it was you know that that was fun we got to travel the country and you know, came to New York and the United Nations yeah. and went to Harvard for an invitational. And, you know, this was all very exciting for a 17-year-old, 18-year-old. Um, and and I think, uh, you know, for me, in, in terms of when I arrived at the University of Toronto, I didn't want to be really engaged with the Muslim community much. I read a lot of novels. I remember I read a lot of Salman Rushdie, interestingly enough. And I had been very active during the, during, um, the 1989-90 Rushdie affair. Um, I had been sort of an active youth voice around, you know, the the banning of the novel and its and its potentially blasphemous content. And so it was funny finding myself <laughs> a number of years later um, reading these novels and finding great uh, not only solace in them, but 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 great conversations that I began to have with myself about my own faith and. And so on, and you know, uh, um, I think the spiritual muscle once it's in there, it can get wobbly, but it never goes away. You know, mm -hmm. and I think mm -hmm. I, I took a hard look at faith, and and I think came back to faith wholeheartedly, uh, but in a way that was that was very much around sort of, you know, what was faith to me? It was about service, and it was about justice, mm -hmm. and so that's the kind of work I engaged in on campus. And I, and I soon became an Islamic studies major. I, I did um, Middle East and Islamic history. And I also did political philosophy with a focus on contemporary Marxism. And I think the merging of those two was really important. You know, I, I did a lot of reading into, into Latin American socialist, Marxist and communist movements. I read, God, I've read a lot of kind of leftist thinkers, ended up working, um, ended up working, you know, um, very closely uh, for several years academically with, with one of kind of the leading um, leftist, you know, post-Marxist thinkers in Canada, Professor Gad Horowitz, who was a major influence on my own sort of political development. Um, 
and and you know i i joined uh you know um at that time uh, uh an islamic political organization that was really connected to worldwide causes and something i left a few years later thank goodness but it was a, it was that was an educational experience as well i was always trying to look for how do i connect my islam to the to, to the big something consequential you know you want your life yeah. to have consequence right and so you mm -hmm. think you know how do i connect my life to something consequential and Islamic learning, you know, was happening, I think, when we got to universities, not in the university classroom, but it was happening really initially, you know, through this kind of opening of this world, right? Like, like you come from uh, almost like a, a, a mosque or a church, and I think Christians probably have very similar experiences, right? You come from a mosque, church, learning about your faith, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you step into the world of theology, and philosophy and jurisprudence and legal ethics and Sufism and mysticism. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, now it's like the breath of it opens up yeah. and you feel like- So expansive. Yeah, and that I have only been scurrying along the corners or edges of this stuff. And that was for, I know for uh, myself and a group of friends was like, it was like a penny drop moment where we would spend like, like fun for us was, you know, we knew where the shelves of Islamic studies were and we would literally start at the beginning and work through books, like picking up books, looking at them, marking down things that we wanted to read. And then when we would finish, we'd leave like little pieces of paper. So we'd remember that we got to the shelf and then we pick up mm. another day. We really went through shelves. It was the way I learned about so many thinkers because I was, I was clocking, oh, this person's writing about, Henry Shamel's writing about mysticism and Goldsey here is writing about, you know, uh, the development of, of a certain type of theology or jurisprudence and someone's right. You know, it started to, mm -hmm. we started to develop a kind of a, a visual genealogy of knowledge as we were studying it. And then I think the pivotal point for me, when, and I think we talk about this kind of academic spiritual learning and how quickly change can happen. That's the other thing that I've realized. I think we do speak about spiritual formation as process. And I think that's really important. But I think within that process, for many people, and I say for myself, there will be moments of absolute clarity, which will not take a lot of time to reach. Hmm. Some may call it a spiritual experience. Others may call it something else. But I think those moments of clarity, in a way, are what we seek. You know, we, we struggle with ourselves, with our understanding of God, with our sacred texts, with our communities, in order to uh, kind of get to the point where, where we feel that we are serving the true purpose of our humanity and thereby serving uh, our creator by being of consequence in the world. And, and by, by being a, a means, and in the Islamic language, we'd say being, being by means to bring justice, mercy, compassion, and so on into the world. And, and you know, that's a process and that's a struggle, always will be. But then there's yeah. moments like you just have absolute clarity. And my moment of, of, of clarity uh, happened in December, 1995, here in New Haven, Connecticut of all places. You know, I had been mm. part of a, this Islamic political movement, had been reading deeply, studying deeply, memorizing a lot of Quran. And I went to the United Kingdom in 1995 and I met people who changed my life and who would become, 
you know, I went for a visit. It was a cousin's wedding, but I, I kind of spent time in Muslim London. You know, it was the first time I was really in London. And my dad yeah. had spoken about this London of his, you know, this great city where he had so many great memories. And and I was this kind of um, I was this kind of flaneur through 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 London and mm -hmm. through Muslim London and going to the mosques and the bookshops and the Islamic spaces, meeting with Muslim student leaders, becoming friends with them, staying at their houses, breaking bread day and night with them, you know, having ice cream on on Leicester Square with them. You know, I, 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 I all of a sudden I had this amazing group of friends and I met uh, the, the person and the persons who would become mentors to me, my, my dear friend. Uh, and mentor, older brother, and, and, and father figure, really, in so many ways, uh, Fouad Mahdi, who passed away a year ago of COVID. Um, and it was the beginning of a 25-year-long relationship with him and his and his wife, Homera, who, who became pivotal in my life, you know, who became just, yeah, uh, you know, I, I, little did I know how, uh, the important role that, that the friendship with them would, would, um, would be for me. And I remember they were the first ones to challenge these kind of assumptions of political Islam that I had, because I was speaking like a, a young recruit. I was speaking like a, a, young, a young ideologue. And they were the first ones to really poke at it and, and, and prod. And it left me with a feeling of uneasiness. And I, and I came back to Toronto and I started a class in, in Islamic mystical thought. And I was, I was a bit austere in those days, a little bit Sufi, a little bit Wahhabi. I, I didn't have a lot of time for, for the mystical and 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 disputed it. I think in my heart, okay. and and all of a sudden I find myself in a class where we're reading the mystical text, and I saw myself changing. The more I fought against it, the more it loved me. The more I fought against it, the more it embraced me. The more I fought against it, it did kind of spiritual jujitsu with me and threw me down again and again, to the point that I was like, I can't resist it. I need to understand it. And then in 1995, a very dear friend of mine, a journalist um, at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Nazim Bakshu, was a, one of my teachers when I was younger as well, and continues to remain a, a mentor and a, and a very dear friend. He basically said, look, there's a really interesting gathering happening in New Haven, Connecticut. It's seven days. It's going to take place in this cabin by the woods. Say, so I don't have much information. You'll stay at the mosque, but I want you and a few of the guys to go and check it out because I think a few of the teachers are really exciting and I've been looking at them and, 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 and been in correspondence with them. Um, you gotta go. So we jumped in his car, there were four of us. We drove down in a snowstorm, we drove back in a snowstorm to New Haven, Connecticut. We stayed on George Street at Masjid al-Islam, right here in town, mm -hmm. at a time when George Street was uh, more um, forbidding than it is now. And um, every day we'd, we'd, we'd get up in the morning for morning prayers and we'd drive to this cabin, which I have no idea where it is, but it was within 20 <laughs> minutes of New Haven. And um, there was, you know, probably 60, 70 people there, men and women. And we had three teachers, uh, one from the Eastern province of Saudi Arabia and one from Cambridge University and one from California. And we read texts of theology of jurisprudence and of mysticism, spirituality. And it was during that time that we read the works of um, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, one of the great Muslim theologians and, and, and spiritual masters uh, and Sufis and, and arguably one of the most important figures in, in, in the classical Islamic tradition. And uh, uh, Christie, seven days, yeah, seven days is all it took. I think by day three or four, I knew that my theological world had basically at that point shattered. 
and it was being rebuilt in ways that really was beautiful and comfortable. I was being exposed to a 1400 year old tradition in a way that I really never had been. And I now realize that I had of course been exposed to it in so many beautiful ways before, but I don't think I'd ever been exposed to it systematically. Mm. In this intensive Mm -hmm. program where from morning prayers to the evening prayers, we are in classes with only breaks for food and we're studying texts and, you know, we're engaging with other students and we're working in the evenings and we're talking and late into the night and, and really challenging ourselves. Like it was, it, it, it was a remarkable week. Yeah. And I came back from that week and I knew my life had changed. I knew I knew I had changed so much so that my professor, um, Professor Timothy Giannotti at the University of Toronto, who's now the, the, the president of the American Islamic College in Chicago, he, uh, he said, you know, we're gonna be starting uh, our study of Ghazali. And he says, I want you to lead the next two classes. And it was a graduate undergraduate seminar. So it was a huge honor, but also very foreboding and, and, and uh, kind of terrifying to, to be able to be put in this position. But he said, you have the readings, you go for it. And I always, you know, I always remember that because it was such an important pedagogical move for him. Yeah. He could see that I'd shifted. He could see something was happening in me. And he said, now, now solidify it. A good teacher does that, mm-hmm. pushes you to, mm-hmm. the, to that edge with compassion and says, you have to do it. You have to go that, to, that, to that place. Yeah. And, and I went to that place and I think that began a new chapter for me. And I would call it this kind of the chapter of my neo-traditionalist revival that, that I really became part of a circle, but actually became part of a, a national and international movement of young Muslims seeking to reconnect with this thing called the classical tradition. Yeah. And that movement now, you know, so many years later, I, I see the value of it shaped me. It made me who I am. Um, it was about study. You know, we were in study circles three days a week. We were in, in larger study circles once or twice a month. We, I would spend my summers at, at six week lock intensive programs where we would cover texts and Arabic and jurisprudence and sort of live the, the lived kind of Sufi ideals. Um, I, and then I started organizing as of 1996 with a group of people, these intensive programs for others. So running, you know, these programs, you know, 20 hour days at campsites and having people coming, like people coming just to read classical texts just to yeah. learn from teachers and that classical method. And that's the method, you know, that I, that I, I embraced. It was the teacher passing it to the student to the point that the student gains expertise so that they can now pass it to somebody else. So mm-hmm. the system of permission or ijaza became very much at the heart of this, of this learning. But what also became at the heart of this learning was, was that, that relationship with teachers. And of course, that's that that can be beautiful and sensitive, but also really, really fraught. But but that's the method, you know, that's the yeah. that's the way we do it. And, you know, in, in, in the Islamic tradition, that really goes back to this divinely ordained system of learning that the that that that, that you know was embodied in the relationship between Angel Gabriel and the Prophet Muhammad. The Angel Gabriel brought the text. The Prophet took that text into his soul, his heart, his body. And then was given permission um, by, you know, God through the angel Gabriel to now transmit that message to others. And then the process continues. Mm-hmm. The idea of honoring oral tradition alongside the written tradition was really emphasized. So I spent a long time in that in that world, and and 
alongside that developed my journalistic journalism practice, which I'd started in the mid 1990s and that ramped up to the late nineties. And after 9-11 in particular, I started doing documentary work for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I was writing for the Toronto Star before that. Um, and then after, after moving to the United Kingdom, my wife is a journalist and we met through uh, a magazine that she worked for in, in London that I had freelanced for that was run by these friends who I'd met in 1995. I moved to the UK in 2003 and, and became a journalist. I did my master's at the London School of Economics and, and Social Policy and Voluntary Sector Organization, but I was really writing and editing and then doing a lot of broadcasting and, and then eventually moved almost more exclusively into print and radio. And for the last 10 years, I was in the UK, did almost radio exclusively for the BBC. And that was documentary work and, and um, a bit of uh, commentary work, but, but a lot of documentary and program making. Um, mm -hmm. I hosted a, a segment called Pause for Thought, which was a kind of a, a daily segment of spiritual reflection um, on, the, on the BBC, which I would do in blocks like every Friday for six weeks and I'd be off for six weeks and every Friday for six weeks and I'd do 20 of those a year. And so I, I was, you know, fairly busy, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a journalist, but then also in the aftermath of um, the uh, 7th of July, 2005 uh, attacks, uh, terrorist attacks in, in London mm -hmm. became part of uh, a group established by my, my friend and mentor Fouad uh, called the radical middle way. And, and, and that work that was, how do we, how do we engage with Muslim communities at a time of real theological confusion? And that while we recognize that terrorism occurs for political reasons, it often has the mood music of religion and, 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 and theology and ideology that, 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 that you know, pushes it forward. And so for many years, um, worked in the United Kingdom and traveled the world, Indonesia, Sudan, Pakistan, Mali, we organized in Morocco and other places working with scholars and uh, religious organizations and, and youth organizations to create resilience to violent extremism and to challenge interpretations of Islam that, that, that gave succor and support to violence and deeply engaged in that world of, of you know, countering extremism and countering mm -hmm. extremist language, countering extremist ideas. And so that became like an organizing force. So, we engage with millions of people around the world in the United Kingdom, you know, hundreds of thousands over over many years. And that work continued and meant that global travel and, and consultancies with Google and the UN and things like that happened. And so I was doing that. I was I was I was had this journalistic life uh, as well and um, a particular interest in arts and culture. So that was always a really important part of of what I was doing from from the late 90s, really. And 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 so, you know, in some ways, I, you know, I, I was a teacher, I was a high school history and drama teacher from oh, 1999 okay. mm -hmm. to 2003. That's probably the last time I had a job, nine to five, you know, everything since then has been lots of, you know, seven to tens <laughs> and, and a lot of juggling, you know, and, and, and hustling and, and, and making all that happen. And, and, yeah. and while at the same time, I think, you know, um, making a choice, you know, making a choice and a decision that my Muslim identity, both spiritually, uh, politically, culturally is important to me, that that identity is not, does not limit me. Yeah. It in fact uh, enhances and grows my humanity. I'm inspired by Toni Morrison, who mm. when asked if she was merely a black author, 
responded, you know, uh, to paraphrase by saying, of course, I'm a black author and I'm a black woman author. And that is something that is such a blessing because I see things and I can write about things and I know things that a white man will never know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was all, I, I, I mean, Toni Morrison in particular, James Baldwin as well, I go back to them a lot, you know, and, and the African-American experience for me, the reading the autobiography of Malcolm X was also one of those pivotal light bulb moments in my life. And, and I think about Morrison's words a lot. They've been so important to me, especially the last few years, because they've just given just me a language, you know, it's, it's her gift to all of us to take her words and to make them our own. But I, I look to her language and mm-hmm. to say that, you know, we, I can be confidently Muslim. I can be the wholeness of myself. And for that not to be a siloing thing, because we struggled with yeah. that all of our lives. Are you a journalist or are you a Muslim journalist? My wife and I used to joke that, you know, when people used to ask us, what do you do? We'd say, oh, we're Muslim. And they would be like, no, no, what do you do? We'd say, exactly, we're Muslim. We were like professional Muslims. <laughs> you know, there was a time when... When yeah. literally, I, I cannot tell you, Christy, there were, there were weeks where every day a different media outlet was calling for comment on something because we were both journalists who were working for a Muslim magazine, who were writing and, 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 and being out there. And it just became exhausting. You were always yeah. commenting on the next terrorist attack, on the next this, on this or that, on whether Muslims are integrating or not. I mean, it was just, it was... One, it was horribly banal, most of it. And then on mm. top of that, it was, it was flattening out, you know, um, a rich, vibrant experience of, 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 of faith and life and culture in the United Kingdom, where I was for almost 15 years mm-hmm. and elsewhere. And it was like, you know, is this where the conversation has to stay? But, but, you know, this is the nature of media and knowledge production and information production in our societies. And I, you know, it, it, I, I, you know, in those times you question yourself, like, what am I doing? Why am I so bloody Muslim? Mm-hmm. You know, is there more to me than that? And, and then some people come to you, there's got to be more to you than that AR. There's got to be more to you than that. But I've come to say is that, is that that's the thing that gives me access to the more of me. For me, I'm not imposing that on any Muslim or any person of faith. Everyone will find their own engagement with their faith tradition. But you want to talk about formation? My formation is, you know, I I know now the genealogy of it is to the ideas in the heart of people like Morrison and Baldwin, Mm -hmm. you know, who confidently were Black and and owned that experience and celebrated that experience because that experience contained multitudes. I can, I know that folks like me can do what a lot of our fellow citizens and a lot of our friends cannot. I can have my two feet in four places at the same time. I can be speaking in one language and thinking in another language. I can be speaking like a Muslim and in my heart and mind be accessing Christian and Jewish and Buddhist wisdom, and that is cool. Um, I can introduce Sufi practice as I've had in the past to my friends at the places like the Greenbelt Festival, which I was actively involved in Greenbelt being a progressive Christian festival in the UK and one of the largest Christian gatherings in the United Kingdom. And I, you know, 
that was my spiritual home. Like when I said, when someone asked me, what's your spiritual home in the UK? Is it a mosque? Is it a, is it a Sufi center? I said, no, it's Greenbelt Festival. I go to the Greenbelt Festival. I speak there, I engage with my Christian friends. I'm nourished by that environment of, 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 of hospitality and welcome and love and God and engagement and, and, and holding all of our contradictions. So what I've learned from my Christian friends, yeah. how do you hold contradictions? Mm -hmm. Art of faithfulness. Mm -hmm. It's part of what Dr. Rowan Williams in his yeah. in his interfaith work in the nineteen uh, in the early two thousands, in some ways taught me is that you know we come to the precipice. You know we come to the edge of questions, and there's there, the, what he would call the mysteries in the Anglican language. You know what happens when you come to the mysteries? What happens after that? We're all in the same place when we get there, Christy. We're all going to get to the end to the, of the mysteries, right? We're all going to get to that point where where we look out and 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 there aren't satisfactory answers, and then we have yeah. we have some big decisions to make about the kind of people we're going to be and how we're going to interface with the divine. You know, it's my Christian yeah. friends who gave me that language and teachers, that and so in the interfaith journey. work. Exactly. And, and, and being with others to be able to speak about those things mm -hmm. in the wholeness of myself. So when I say I'm a, I'm a Muslim, I, I, I mean, when I say Muslim, I mean that as, as a term of expansiveness, as a, a term of positionality that contains um, not only complexity, but that uh, contains possibility. And I encourage mm -hmm. those who are on the journey and, and the journey we're all on is to, is to allow ourselves to be ourselves on our own terms and to be part of mm. community on our own terms and to struggle to be part of community and to find a place for ourselves. But also yeah. that I think when faith starts to become something that closes us off from other human beings, there is a problem with our faith. And it's one of the things that I, I look to Malcolm, you know, Malcolm X and in his autobiography, he says something really powerful. And to paraphrase, you know, he, he talks about his journey from the nation of Islam right. uh, to what he called Orthodox Sunni Islam. And that's not to discount or to belittle the ongoing value of organizations like the nation of Islam or the incredible impact that those organizations had um, on, uh, on American, American life. They are important and, and vital part of our American history, particularly black American history and Muslim American history. Those things are important. Yeah. But in Malcolm's own spiritual journey, as he moves from the nation of Islam to, to uh, what he calls Orthodox Sunni Islam, he says that since coming back from Mecca and having the experience of the pilgrimage, which was so vital and so powerful in his shaping of the ideas of the human family, he says, my friends have become black and white, a Christian, Jewish, uh, Buddhist, Democrat and Republican. Um, he says, I, some of my friends are even Uncle Tom's. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was him saying that as he became and entered into his own faith tradition more fully and began to settle in it and began to, began to expand in it and become more confident in it, his capacity to engage and, and to see broadly increased. Yeah. And to me, a failure of faith is this. If someone's faith is increasing in confidence, mm -hmm. 
and your circle is becoming uh, smaller, it's a failure of your religion, period. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I feel categorical about that. And so I'll say it categorically. Yeah. You, you have failed in your religion if your confidence in your religion leads you to closing the door to others. Because that power of connection. So and, and, and what does our religion teach us? The closer we are to God, the closer we are to the, or the closer we feel to God, the closer we are, we should feel to the source of mercy. And is it not incumbent upon us, uh, as, as the Islamic tradition teaches us, you know, the, the, merciful, uh, the, the merciful ones are shown mercy by the most merciful. Mm. have mercy to those who are on the earth and the one who is above the heavens will have mercy upon you. This is yeah. what the, what we are taught. The first statement of the prophet Muhammad, we are taught when we enter in to this system of classical teaching in the Sunni Islamic tradition, mm -hmm. this is the first thing. So, so, so if, 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 if closeness to the divine and confidence in our faith means we are, we are seeking to enter the circle of mercy and yet we are unmerciful with others. Mm -hmm. We close the door off, that we stand in judgment, yeah. um, that we close off conversation, then there's a problem with our religion. Right. You Power know, of connection and mercy. What a, what a beautiful place to, to wrap up our conversation. Thank you so much, AR, for your reflections and sharing your many layers of identity and the richness of, of your narrative. It's, it's been such an honor to talk. I really appreciate it, Christy, and and and, and, and sorry for droning on, uh, droning on <laughs> it was so, so long. so fascinating. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. This has been a Fireside Chat featuring Abdurrahman Malik, sponsored by the Spiritual Formation and Practice of Faith Committee. Thank you for listening. between my immigrant parents and their very radically different experiences and commitments as Jews. So I think one of the things that I wanted to, um, to know sort of from my perspective that it, it actually doesn't really make a lot of sense to me to frame this conversation in terms of faith, um, but rather in terms of peoplehood, community, and belonging, um, because I've always understood my Jewishness in terms of commitments to community, commitments to family, to traditions, to practices, and to ways of moving through the world, and not in terms of faith or belief. Um, yeah, that strikes me as very Jewish, and I think also <laughs> mirrors what I also have to share. So I'm so happy to share the conversation yeah. commitment and experience and peoplehood. Yes. Well, and so like I think one of the 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 important sort of distinctions there is, you know. The, the, you know, the distinction between sort of like an individual salvation narrative versus a kind of like peoplehood and history narrative. And so when you're talking about, you know, Jewishness in terms of belonging and commitments and community and family um, and tradition, um, you, you can reframe the conversation um, in terms of history. So history actually plays this really central role in um, even sort of identity formation and what we might call, what we might sort of translate culturally into like from what, you know, you know, the brief that we've been given to have this conversation of like spiritual formation, I think is more like, um, um, how do you fit, how do you see yourself fitting within, um, you know, a Jewish community, you know, globally 
in time and space, in, you know, in the different sort of worlds you inhabit, in your family, in traditions, in your family. And so that's, that's more of how I see it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, like, I mean, someone told me like, story and then I'm going to tell you about that. That's great. Okay. Okay. I'll tell, I'll tell my story. So, um, so as I said, I was raised um, in the conservative and reformed Jewish communities in the Bay Area, in Palo Alto, um, which is a small but international and um, academically oriented Jewish community. Um, this detail actually really is just like the smallest sliver of the story, um, because the other part of it has to do with that, you know, big asterisk I mentioned. So my mother was brought up in a very traditional, um, very strongly identified, one might sort of say modern Orthodox Jewish community in Costa Rica. Um, my mom's parents had fled pogroms um, uh, in Poland sorry, my mother's mother, my grandmother's parents um, had fled pogroms in Poland in the 1920s um, and moved to Central America. Um, so while my grandmother had grown up in Costa Rica, my grandfather, so my mother's father, um, he was himself an immigrant to Costa Rica. He was born in British Mandatory Palestine. Um, his own parents were among the initial waves of Eastern European immigrants to Palestine at the beginning of the 20th century. So they themselves fleeing pogroms. Um, you know, in the Pale of Settlement in the Russian Empire. And my grandfather grew up in Palestine to see the Jewish state born. He fought, he was in the Palmach, he fought in the 48 war, um, and then quickly grew sort of impatient with the limited opportunities, economic opportunities um, of the young Jewish state. Um, so long story short, he uh, joined his Jewish of Polish descent, Costa Rican wife <laughs> for an exilic, prosperous life in you know, the small traditional insular Jewish community um, in San Jose, Costa Rica. And my mom herself came to the United States in her 20s as an international college student. So that's my mom. My dad is a completely different story. So he grew up in the Soviet Union um, for most of his life in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. Um, his parents had actually moved to Uzbekistan during the years of um, the state-sponsored forced starvations um, in uh, the Ukraine. Um, in the 1930s. And then in the 1960s, the family received permission from the Soviet government to return to Odessa, um, which is where my family was from. Um, and my father grew up without any practicing Jewish community to speak of, except for his family. Um, of course, as many know, Judaism was suppressed by the state. Jews who were suspected of practicing Judaism were regularly sent to die in uh, forced labor camps in Siberia. And actually my father's grandfather was one of those who died in the Gulag. Um, so when my father was about to be drafted to the Soviet military, um, the whole family applied for an exit visa um, from the Soviet Union, um, ostensibly to exit as political refugees um, for the Jewish state. Um, a previous wave of Jews had actually participated in hunger strikes um, in the Soviet Union, had risked labor camps um, themselves to make that opportunity possible for my father and his family. Um, and that is the story actually of how my own husband's father had left the Soviet Union. But anyways, I digress. That's not really part of my own story. Um, so there was a lot of international pressure that made these exit visa applications possible. And it was, um, it was still pretty risky. Um, so when you applied for an exit visa in the Soviet Union, you that meant you would lose your job, your enrollment in college, your ability to receive any benefits from the state, um, you losing your citizenship basically. Um, uh, so that's how my father actually came here, um, seeking asylum uh, in the United States. Um, uh, instead of going to the you know young and warring Jewish state, um, 
his family, he and his family, he was in his 20s, um, sought the stability that was afforded by, you know, the longstanding perceived safety and tolerance of Jews in the, in the United States. So why am I long in telling this family story? Well, I mean, um, other than the fact that it's such a Jewish story, right? This idea it is, yes. like moving from places and persecution and like, yes, it resonates so deeply with me it, and like the most Jewish people. Yes. I mean, I think one of the things that's actually fascinating to me and, uh, and, um, one of the things that, you know, my husband and I share that, you know, he, both of us have fathers who um, fled the Soviet Union. Um, his mother's actually um, American. And I always looked at sort of like long generations of American Jews as like kind of like um, fantasy creatures to me almost because um, it's, it's almost like this very strange period almost in, in Jewish history that um, Jews have been able to live um, in a kind of like political um, and economic stability. Um, and and it, it is interesting to me because like, I feel like my experience as, you know, uh, I always wonder if my, my time here in the United States is temporary. Just like, I always think like, I'm not, I hate to say this like publicly, I guess I'm doing it. I'm not really an American Jew, like I'm a Jew. And then I, I have American citizenship. Um, but I also have Israeli citizenship, which is another story. But I also have, you know, um, claims perhaps to Costa Rican citizenship. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't feel really tethered to anything. Um, that's sort of like my Jewish experience, like being yeah, untethered. So yeah, it's so interesting to hear you say that because I think, I mean, my grandparents here in kind of like the late 1800s between then and the very beginning of the Second World War. Um, and even I, which I guess I'm maybe a little bit more American, although I mean, only by, you know, an extra hundred years, maybe <laughs> um, I've started to like have that same feeling in the last few years in a way that I'd never imagined of like beginning to think like, okay, at what point do, do I and my family, like, at what point do we get up and leave and go somewhere else? because anti-Semitism is happening again. And it's a really, yeah. it's a really scary thought to begin to see patterns in history that really remind me of Germany in the early 1900s, mid 1900s. And like that feeling of being an American Jew, but like starting to question what that American peace means um, has been a really, scary experience for me in the last few years. And it just seems like we're maybe meeting at this, at this point of this insider. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think it's actually so, this is why I say like the family history is so central to uh, a feeling of, of Jewishness because it's both about, I mean, my search has always been about like the, the community, you know, if I'm always, perpetually in search and not finding a place where I feel like I fit. And there's obviously a lot of really important reasons, right? Like, why did I tell this whole long story, right? Like you, you couldn't have two more contrasting Jewish experiences in terms of belonging. You know, my mom with her very strong Jewish identity cultivated in, you know, her practicing community, which was insular and provincial, but safe, right? Um, uh, um, and then, you know, my, my dad with no formal Jewish education, right, experiencing persistent oppression and suppression of Jewishness his whole life, um, you know, just, just to sort of like 
illustrate the point. My father's parents, my grandparents, illegally and secretly held their Jewish wedding ceremony in their living room with the blinds drawn and only the closest of family members present. So, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's not, that's not a million years ago, you know, that's in recent memory. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I don't feel like I'm being alarmist when I say um, I, I can feel the rise um, of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism is not, is actually, it's like, it's part of, of what it means to be Jewish. Um, uh, it's that history and that experience. Um, and, um, right, like it's, it's this whole thing about like, if I set aside the idea of like, you know, faith, right? I don't wanna talk about faith, right? Because if I were to say like, my entire experience within the Jewish community, right? In my religious education, at key moments in the life cycle, my bat mitzvah, my first wedding, I was married before, my subsequent divorce, right? I, I was married in the Rabbanut. Get out, in we really are. This <laughs> right? So I was, I was married like Orthodox, Orthodox, right? Um, I had to, you know, I had to get a get, you know, by the, the, the rabbinic court of Los Angeles. Um, then my okay, next wedding. We'll share, we'll share our stories of getting the get is a document of Jewish divorce. We'll we'll share those yes, stories. Yeah. I mean that that's that I would say like I ha I actually hadn't even planned on bringing it up, but it actually is this kind of weird um, moment in my Jewish identity where um, I just I that along with like a few other moments where I just you know I I cannot I I. I, I cannot throw myself into Jewish practice because I feel persistently like I cannot make enough apologies to to um, accept that I don't belong as much as a man. And and to me that that's just it's the stumbling block always for me. And and I can't get past it. And I know there's other people who can provide a whole set of rationale for for the way they live their life, and I would never judge them. But I can't get over it. And um, I totally empathize. <laughs> I find it so fascinating because I very much feel like I have continued to live within the Orthodox community and try to do that work and like manage and process these exact feelings of being in a religious leadership role in a community, but I'm not a rabbi and I can't be. And that's why I'm at Yale Divinity School because there are no institutions of higher learning within my community that can train me to do the job that I'm doing. Um, and so, but I still wanna do it. And so I'm leaving my community in order to come back and like also constantly feel like for my whole life, I've been navigating this question of what it means to be a Jewish woman and how that impacts my practice and how, and I feel like that is very much something that's on my mind and on my heart all the time like when you talk about ancestors when I think about my ancestors I frame it in this reality that like I come from a long long line of rabbis that like the people in my family for generations and generations and generations my father my grandfather my like the men in my family are rabbis and that's this amazing glorified position and like I know that if I was born a boy, that I would be the next rabbi in the generation, like in the line and trying oh. to come to terms with what it means to see myself 
as a Jew, as part of my history and connect also as a woman when the things that speak the most to me about my community and my tradition don't jive so smoothly with being a traditional Jewish woman. And that's been kind of where I've navigated. It also was something I thought a lot about when I got divorced. Um, it's something I think a lot about when I teach um, and when I started learning Talmud, which is um, Jewish law, which is an area of study that I was denied for my whole formal, you know, 13 years of Jewish schooling and trying to feel like I'm always playing catch up so that I could like sit at the same table. Um, but then also like trying to recognize that hopefully if I do a good job and other people follow me and work with me, that we won't have young women who feel the way that we have felt. And maybe that's, I mean, that's my dream, um, but that it's just interesting to like reflect on that in contrast, but also I feel like parallel to what you're sharing. I'm, I'm gonna, I wonder if you and I had the same experience of watching Yentl over and over again. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to watch TV and movies. Oh, okay. So I didn't watch Yentl, but I know Yentl because Yentl is in my heart. <laughs> For those of us who don't, who are listening, who don't know the story of Yentl, Yentl is a story, it's Barbara Streisand, it's an amazing movie, everyone should watch it. Um, she wants to learn Talmud, she wants to learn Jewish law, and so she dresses up and pretends to be a boy so that she could go to yeshiva. And it's so striking to me because I grew up reading Tamora Pierce, who like wrote these fantasy novels about girls who um, dressed up to go become knights. They pretended to be boys and they went to the castle to become a knight. <laughs> And it's the same story. It's the story of an amazing woman who can do it and who needs to like lie about who she is in order so that she exactly was born to do. And like, oh, it speaks to my soul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I would say like there was a moment, um, I mean, the moment I usually identify as when I, you know, I had to, um, my, my family, we went to Costa Rica fairly often um, to visit family. Um, and we went, um, for my cousin's bar mitzvah, um, and, and I had no context for understanding, you know, what, um, you know, what an Orthodox, you know, that men and women sit apart, you know, I, I just didn't know. Um, and, and in this synagogue, the women sat, sat upstairs. Um, I just didn't know. I was, I think it was like 10. Um, but we walk into the synagogue and the, um, you know, the usher tells me, in Spanish, probably, um, that I have to go upstairs to sit with my mom. And, and I'm just running after my dad, my dad, who probably doesn't even want to be there, right? But I'm running after my dad. And I'm just saying, you know, like, I want to go and sit with you, you know, um, and, you know, he, you know, everyone's just sort of like, hey, Jack, you have to go upstairs. Um, uh, um, I, I think I, at one point, you know, probably had some harsh words for the usher who was totally confused, but I just, you know, I think I said something like, show me the text where it's written, where I have to sit upstairs. Um, but, you know, I sat upstairs with the rest of the service. I was so ma mad. I mean, I was just, I, I think I asked my mom, you know, um, did they deny you from reading from the Torah too when, when you were growing up? Um, and, and, you know, I remember like the moment where we're like throwing candy at my cousin. And I'm just so mad. I'm just like pelting those like <laughs> pieces of candy. Love about that story is that you're already asking the usher about the text. You're like, let's talk about the Jewish text here. <laughs> I was so mad. I just, I felt like I wasn't even given a chance, you know? And I think, 
I think that moment, I think something broke in me in that moment where I was just like, I'm, I'm not, I don't even have access, you know, like even if, even if I could, even if I wanted to. And I, um, and I think that's where I started having these sort of fantasies of studying Jewish texts <laughs> that I thought like, you know, if I just, if I just can, can figure them out, if I can figure them out and, and if I can be smarter than anyone else and can understand the languages that maybe I would find a way to figure out where I fit. You know, if I read the texts hard enough and I make sense of them enough, I'll figure out where I fit. And I think that that sort of morphed into, um, then it sort of became, well, I don't see myself in these texts. So I'm going to keep digging older and older and older until I get to what is the oldest text. Um, I I mean, thankfully, I've moved away from that kind of thinking. Um, But I think that that is what sort of brought me to the biblical texts, because um, I, I just, I, it felt untouched in a way that um, even though it's, it kind of struck me that like the Hebrew Bible, in a sense, um, and more so the Ketuvim than any other of the texts are almost claimed by no one, you know? Um, they're, they're almost orphaned in a sense um, because they're not a central part um, of um, you know, Jewish liturgy or practice. I mean, like, of course, yes, they show up in liturgy, but that's not my point. You know? It's not Jewish law, it's not Talmud, it's not, um, it's not the center of, of sort of how Jewish experience is sort of like centers around, Jewish learning centers around. So um, I think that's where I sort of like lost myself in there. And I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be here. <laughs> Funny, I, yeah, I feel like I mentioned like coming to Talmud and studying Jewish law at a I feel like I committed myself for the last 10 years to really study Talmud and learn how to do it. Um, and I wonder if I'll ever be able to get away from this like inferiority complex of like, I'm not pronouncing the words the same way, the guys that grew up in yeshiva since forever, like the same way that they do it. And, and only very recently, um, and I'm so proud and excited about this, this experience, only recently has this like voice awakened in me where it's like, well, maybe this is a right way to do it also. And maybe there can be like, there's, it is now time for there to be women Talmud scholars who can learn this text and dig through it to find themselves um, and to make it their own. And I think it's a different kind of battle than the one, you know, you mentioned, um, but it does, it constantly feels like I'm navigating this internal voice of like, I'm not here, why am I not here? And then being able to say like, no, I, I'm here because I'm here and I can make myself be here and I belong. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the thing that, um, the thing that's so striking, I feel like when I, when I tell this story is that, um, you know, it's almost like I was escaping to biblical studies because I felt like I couldn't belong um, in, you know, in Jewish text study, um, and I couldn't belong religiously, um, and I couldn't belong in terms of practice and community. I just didn't find myself there. Um, and what is so almost ironic and hilarious about it is that I definitely don't belong in biblical studies. Um, it's like, what was I thinking? You know, um, that that you know, I was leaving sort of you know 
like I was, I was leaving, you know, you know, one sort of yentl situation for another yentl situation, um, where, where I don't know the pathways, uh, the sort of the social la landscape even more, you know, um, just because biblical studies has been, um, dominated for so long, um, by Protestant, um, by Protestant theology. So it's also a foreign land to me. Um, and I might even say, even for, um, you know, I, I do sometimes find refuge um, in uh, the, you know, the various sort of um, philologically inclined Jewish scholars in the field, just because I, I often see, you know, eye to eye on certain approaches. Um, but e even there, I also feel like they all share this experience. These men share this experience of having gone to yeshiva together. And I don't have that. I didn't go to yeshiva. I, I didn't have that opportunity. And, and even if I went to like Beis Yaakov, it would have been different anyways. Um, yeah. So, so. Yeah, it's so funny. I feel similarly. I mean, obviously I'm not, you know, in officially in the field of Bible study, but even my experience taking academic Bible in my years here, um, at YDS, I, I, I like no Bible. I went to had like tw 13 years of actually 16. Cause I went to a Jewish college that required Bible study. Um, I have years of Bible study, except it's totally not the same thing. Like I can read the text in Hebrew and I know what all the commentaries and the medieval commentaries for years and years and years back say about things. And yet they're like conversations happening that I can't, quite understand and there is almost like a concern of like loss of ownership of a text that like I that is mine and I own but then it feels so foreign to me when it's articulated in this very like white male protestant um language and I'm like are we talking about the same book right now <laughs> it's like you're missing a midrash on, you know, like I used to this, it doesn't happen so often anymore, but, um, you know, early on, I think it was probably in my master's, um, when we would read a text, I would have a different memory of the text and, you know, we would be discussing a text. Um, and I would, I, I would think, wait, I'm remembering this text differently. And then I'd realize that what I was remembering was some midrash that I had learned alongside the text. You're um, like, wait, that's not actually in the Bible? Like that's not in the text? Yeah, I've had the same experience. And then what's so- Moses didn't put the hot coals in his mouth? <laughs> exactly. For me, it was Abraham being thrown into the furnace. I was like, I'm, I'm sure I skipped this part. Like it goes straight from chapter 10 to chapter 11, but I'm pretty sure there's supposed to be a 10.5. Like- uh, <laughs> It's so funny because then I feel like I go through this experience of being like, oh, that's not in the text. That's not really true. That, and then like to have that be denied as like valid interpretation or study. And then to fight back and say like, no, why isn't like rabbinic interpretation, like early rabbinic interpretation and midrash, like why isn't that also a form of valid interpretation of reading and thinking about the nuance of the text and it is mastery the things the, the textual details and themes that are talked about in the midrash are the same themes that we're picking up on now as if we just discovered them but like <laughs> you know like they got they, they had it back then. <laughs> yeah it is um it does it i think that um for me one of the one of the the things that 
keeps me feeling like I'm in exile <laughs> perpetually is that um, I can't even sort of claim, um, you know, any sort of specific Jewish community is mine either. Um, and I think a little bit of that comes from um, my dad. Uh, and, you know, his, it's funny, because if you were to ask him, like, you could meet him now and, and hear his Russian accent, and folks will say, are you Russian? Um, and he'll say, no, I'm Jewish. Um, because, you know, uh, <laughs> they spend all of their lives in, you know, the Soviet Union, um, fending off accusations that they were Jews and not Russians, um, not Soviet citizens, you know, um, and then to come here and then people say, well, are you Russian? It's just like, wait, what? Um, and, and I think a little bit of that sort of like displacement, um, the way I dealt with, you know, not feeling totally comfortable, um, sort of uh, shedding, you know, my sort of my identity in, um, you know, giving up a little bit of, um, of who I am through sort of subordinating myself in a kind of patriarchal system. Um, you know, the way I dealt with it was I thought, you know what, I'm going to make Aliyah and I'm going to be Israeli now. Um, and, uh, and therefore I will claim a kind of Jewish nationalism, a secular Jewish nationalism, and I won't be bound to any sort of questions of, you know, should I practice or, or do I need to practice um, to continue to feel like I belong? Um, and even that didn't work um, just because I think that um, ethical questions about what it means um, for there to be a Jewish nationalism um, started to creep up on me. And, and I really, I just couldn't, I couldn't maintain that um, ethically. And so um, I, I just knew that it wasn't really the right place. I, I didn't fit there either. Um, and then I think the funniest part of all of this is that when I, <laughs> my husband says that when I finally got my first position at Brandeis, he said, here, now you can solve your Jewish identity problem. You can be a professor at Brandeis. He's professor at Brandeis. <laughs> I was like, here, here, Jackie, you've solved your Jewish identity problem. And then, I mean, which betrays a complete lack of knowledge of the kind of, you know, conflicting sort of overlapping identities that are experienced by, by faculty at Brandeis. I mean, what does it mean to be a faculty member at Brandeis is like to really struggle with the question of Jewish identity in like the most acute way possible. So <laughs> I think it was a little naive <laughs> to say here, this is going to solve your problem. Um, if we do think, know anything, it, there's never going to be someone no, solve this no, problem. <laughs> no, but, but it was, I did find it a little bit hilarious. Um, uh, to me, one of the most um, interesting experiences so far, I guess, as you know, living my life Jewishly has been to be this kind of like, you know, to take a kind of leadership role, like an intellectual leadership role in a Christian identified divinity school. Um, and and I've, I've worked really hard not to be like, you know, I'm not a token Jew. I'm just, I'm, I'm me, you know, this is, I am who I am, um, not, not to not to quote the Bible here, but um, I, I am me um, and um, I, I am Jewish, but it is, you know, being Jewish is not one thing. Um, and it, you know, it's a complex sort of set of overlapping identities. 
Um, but I also appreciate that it's an opportunity to be able to um, show people who might not understand, um, you know, what it means to um, interface the Bible not not as a Christian. Um, and that's been an important experience for me. That's awesome. Um, should I go back to my, I'll, I'll rewind yeah, yeah. All bits and pieces already through yeah, yeah. our conversation. But um, so I mentioned my ancestors, my rabbinic line um, that I grew up, uh, I was born into and was raised and I'm still a part of the, um, of Orthodox, the Orthodox Jewish community. Um, I went to um, a Jewish day camp, a Jewish elementary school, middle school, all girls, high, Jewish high school. Um, I took a gap year studying in seminary in Israel um, at an Orthodox all girls um, seminary. I went to Stern College, Yeshiva University, which is an all girls Jewish um, college. And I was like, I mean, I still am, but like just such a goody two shoes. Like I loved my community. I followed all the rules. It was knee socks, shirts to my elbows, skirts to my knees, collarbone covered. Like, um, and I just loved my Judaism. I loved Jewish texts. I loved, um, I always loved studying Judaics. Um, and I loved Jewish practice. Like it was just such a big part of who I was. And I think the fact that I was in all girls spaces, um, basically my whole life until after college, um, it never, it just never, the gender thing, like it came up, but it just never really occurred to me because I wasn't around men very frequently. Um, and so I was just like doing my thing in my own happy little universe. Um, and I knew that I wanted to teach um, Bible and Jewish practice and Jewish philosophy. Um, I was like totally a teacher. And this is the way that women go, like when women have the qualities to become rabbis, they become high school teachers. That's like what we did. So I started training to, um, in college, I did my degree in Jewish education. And part of that, um, that program was field work and internship experience. And I was placed, my first field work placement was at the, um, the Abraham Joshua Heschel High School. Um, which is a pluralistic Jewish day school on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And it was my first time ever meeting, spending serious time, I think like really ever meeting Jews, anyone who wasn't Orthodox. Like I had grown up so sheltered um, and it blew my mind. I remember after my first day of observation, I had seen like a Bible class and I walked to the subway crying my eyes out because I was so confused. Like I was taught, not that anyone necessarily explicitly said this, but I was kind of like led to believe that Orthodox Jews are doing this right. And people who are not Orthodox Jews are just either not trying hard enough and like don't care enough or are just like radically misinformed. And like that just <laughs> didn't jive with what I was seeing. And I, it blew my mind and I ended up falling in love with the school. I never left even after my fieldwork hours were done and they ended up hiring me and I taught there for seven years. And that was a really transformative experience. Um, before I started, I would, I would, I would not call myself a feminist. I was asked to facilitate a prayer group, like the women's prayer group. And I was like, 
okay, but like, I'm not a feminist. Like I don't, feminist is a feminist <laughs> word. And then after my first year of being in these women's spaces and like thinking about myself differently, I'm like, of course I'm a feminist. What's wrong with this? And like, it totally broke me out of, even though I stayed, I lived in the Orthodox community. I continue to affiliate Orthodox and my practice is an Orthodox practice. I, my, I just was like, there's something not right here. And, um, I started teaching in congregational settings, um, just teaching adult education classes. And then I started, they invited me back and I would go for, you know, for the weekend for Shabbat and I would give a speech. And then I started going every weekend. And so then I was there and I was their community educator and I was going every weekend and I was giving a sermon and I was teaching a class and I was like leading a, like facilitating a prayer service. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I just gave the job description of a, of rabbi. a rabbi. Like, yeah. why am I not a rabbi? And the answer was, is because I didn't go to rabbinical school, but there was no rabbinical school for me to go to. And so I found my in this, like feminine space that is brand, brand new in my community that really has come about in the last few years. Are you years. talking about Maharaj? Is this yeah. Maharat? Well, so in the last few years, like literally when I was in college, the first Maharat was ordained. A Maharat is from a school who, who ordained women as Orthodox communal leaders, some of whom take the title rabbi. And this created a huge split in, in my community, in the modern Orthodox community, of people who were accepting of this kind of title giving and people who weren't. And I had grown up on the side of the tracks, I guess you could say, that was firmly opposed. Um, and yet, because these women had taken this step, more mainstream, more traditional Orthodox synagogues were like, okay, well, we could have women teach some kinds of classes. And that's where I am now. I'm in these positions that have been created out of a genuine recognized need in the Orthodox community for not, not just need for women leaders, but just a recognition of the capacity that like, there are brilliant, smart, passionate, capable women who have what to say and to teach. And um, we want to have them here. And um, so I'm like in this space that there isn't really prop like education for that for me within my community. Um, it's this liminal space. I'm not even always sure exactly what my job description is. And yet I'm committed to doing it because I know that you can't become the things that you can't see. And like I, when I was growing up, when I had my bat mitzvah, I could never have imagined a woman speaking from the pulpit and giving a sermon. Like it, it literally was just something I couldn't imagine. And now like the little kids who are growing up in this Orthodox congregation, like are gonna think it's totally normal. And like, it's slow change and it's painful for some people. And I recognize that. And it's also sometimes painful for me. I wonder if I'm just kind of like supporting and enabling a system to exist that like, is hurtful to a lot of women. Um, and yet I'm trying to like stay within and give back to the community that I love, that I grew up in, that I care so much about, genuinely love um, and help it be the best possible version of itself. And it's sometimes a messy process and sometimes leads me to like end up at a Christian divinity school. Um, <laughs> but it's been, it's been a real adventure. And when I think about like what role this me being here has in my journey and my, I guess, like faith experience, but also like a sense of responsibility to my community is I feel like I'm coming to get the wisdom 
that I can, where I can get it of like the um, pastoral training of preaching of um, like academic study and knowledge and bring that back to my community so that the girls who now grow up and the boys um, who now grow up and the everyone who now grow up as Orthodox Jews can see that um, things don't have to just look like one thing. That's the hope. We'll see. We'll see if that happens. It's it's interesting. Like I, I think, um, you know, um, many times when I've taught um, undergrads at various institutions, um, uh, you know, public universities, private universities, um, you know, intro to Hebrew Bible courses, um, there's always a kind of, you know, uh, faith challenge moment um, where people have to reckon with um, a way of reading a text um, through a sort of historical critical lens um, that forces you to read it um, outside of a certain set of assumptions about that text. Um, and it can bring about real crises of faith. Um, and I wouldn't say that, you know, it brought me to a crisis. Again, it's, it's because what, what we might think, you know, how we might translate sort of like a, maybe a Christian notion of faith for us is history, right? We're sort of like the history of the Jewish people is like part of how we might, you know, construe ourselves as a community today and in the past and all sort of linked together in a chain. Um, and so when you, um, when you start asking those kinds of questions about Sinai and you ask questions about, you know, the historicity of, of you know, the texts, um, it can bring you to a place um, that uh, leads you to think, you know, um, I can't keep practicing. And I think that one of the things that uh, um, I've always thought is um, how you how you practice as a Jew for me um, has very little to do with what I understand about the texts. Um, and uh, was it? I actually once played this this video of um, uh, James Kugel um, for an intro course where uh, what does he say? Um, uh, I don't believe in the Torah. I believe in God. Um, um, which to me is still, that, that's, you know, I, I think that's a very helpful way of thinking about these things. But I think that, again, the reason I'm not practicing, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not doing all these practices, is um, I think because I don't feel like I belong in a community. I think that practice is actually very much tied to how you feel um, connected with others, um, at least Jewishly, um, because all of these things are done together. You cannot have Shabbat alone. You cannot have a Seder alone. You cannot um, have a minion alone. You know, you cannot do these things alone. Um, and um, you know, I'm okay where I am right now. You know, I'm okay with it. Um, but I do know, and I've, I've, I've recognized since having a son, um, that um, I'm pressed more and more back into the community. So my sort of exile from the, from the Jewish community um, may be coming to an end um, because I, because I feel an obligation to bring him back in, you know, to bring him into it. Um, you know, I, we had a bris, um, 
for me, it's really funny because um, my my husband probably thinks that um, I'm nuts about these things. But um, when it comes to uh, major life cycle moments or major moments that I sort of um, situate as very sort of central to my identity as a Jew, I always lean towards more orthodox practices, uh, even though I was like, I'm not, I'm not keeping kosher. I'm not keeping Shabbat because those things I think are not part of the practices I've outlined for myself. So I'm definitely one of those like buffet style <laughs> Jews. So I'm so intrigued by this framing. And I think it's, it's so helpful of thinking about the role of community um, in keeping Jewish practice. And I think this is something that like the rabbis totally understood. And when they crafted rabbinic Judaism, I think they emphasized, they made laws and regulated things in such a way that, yeah, Judaism has to take place within a community. And then to hear you also mention family. And I think that's a very lived experience yeah. of people um, that when they have children, that brings them kind of like more, makes them more traditional or do more kinds of practices. And it's just so interesting because I feel like I've been on both sides of that coin of like recognizing that in kind of like an observant Jewish setting, the emphasis is on community and on family. It idealizes a certain kind of um, family, which is like being married and having kids. And then for me, the experience of feeling so connected to the Orthodox community in my case, but then having a family life that doesn't fit in kind of like this picture of what it means to be Jewish, right? Like divorce is not something, I mean, not it's not really like chill anywhere, um, but it's definitely not, you know, super chill in the community that I came from. And then having that experience of loneliness and people who aren't in families feel very disconnected often from their Judaism and like Jewish experience and Jewish practice. And I just, I just find that like a very, Maybe, I don't know, I can't speak to like other religions so well, but like a very uniquely Jewish thing because it really pulls to kind of not, it's, it's, it's not about my personal faith experience. That's not the way most Jews I know talk about their Jewishness. It is about this history, family, community um, element. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, it's interesting that you've also had a, an Orthodox divorce. Um, so um, that uh, um, one of the things that um, will always stick with me, um, well, I also found sort of, I, I remember it was, it was not a pleasant experience um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's almost like, it's almost like a wedding in reverse, right? Where it's like, you know, you're like, you're like, <laughs> you're times that you are a divorced woman. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also like, um, uh, you know, like you are banished, you are banished, you are banished. Um, and, um, you know, um, after the whole thing was over, um, when, you know, the rabbi was saying goodbye to me, um, he said, um, I hope you find your people. And, I, I, I think I could have taken that like in a bad way, but I think he meant it genuinely as in, um, I, I hope you, I hope you find a family. Um, I hope, I hope you find a family for yourself and I can, you know, I can take that not charitably and think, you know, you know, as a woman, I can exist without a husband. Like 
I'll just put that out there. I don't need this. Um, but, um, but again, it's just sort of so sort of hardwired that um, what it means to exist Jewishly is to exist within a family. Um, and I hope you find your people. <laughs> well, I did find my people, so <laughs> happy now. For all of y'all who are listening and are like worried about me, I'm good. I'm getting married in May. Like, <laughs> I'd be good, okay. And I'd be okay anyway, right? It's so interesting, right? Like you said, yeah. why yeah. is it that I need to be married to be okay and coming to like terms yeah. of the fact that like as a single woman, like there is a wholeness there that I can come to and find. And at the same time, being a wife and then hopefully future a mother and being part of a family has religious resonance um, in, in a really, in a really it's, it's like interesting because I reject, there's so many times in which I reject, you know, the, the ways in which those roles are construed. And I, um, you know, uh, I think a family is what you make you know, you make your own family. Um, and however you make that, um, I think it's wonderful. And, um, you know, everyone should do what is most meaningful for them um, and gives them the most, you know, joy and, um, you know, sense of um, wholeness. Um, so I have no sort of, you know, uh, I have no sort of ideas of like, what is the correct way to have a family? Like, absolutely not. Um, uh, and I, and in fact, I think, I think that, you can read the texts and see that too, um, that you can read the biblical texts. I, I love these sort of counter, this is another reason why I love doing this because there are so many counter readings that you can do because you know, the ancient world was just as, you know, ancient world was just as complex as our world was, it, it, perhaps in different ways, but the variety of human experiences there too. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's, it's just not, yeah, in any case, <laughs> Amen. yeah um it's funny because uh, we did not speak about faith at all really but i think well, that we, we um, only to counter what our experiences were to like say but yeah or it's like i think that one of the things that i had put a sort of bookmark to to make sure that i say is that you know, every single moment in the life cycle um, within the Jewish community for me, right? My bat mitzvah, my first wedding, my divorce, my next wedding, my son's bris, um, you know, uh, I never had occasion um, to profess or examine my faith, right? I always felt like faith was really treated as ancillary to specific practices and to performances of community inclusion, right? Um, that uh, I don't know if this is the case for you. Just like, it would be interesting for me to hear if, you know, within, you know, um, you know, a more observant um, world, if faith is treated as central, but my, my sense is no. Um, it's not. It's fascinating. I think it was like, it was often used as like a throwaway example, like that you should have emuna, right? Faith, that's like the Hebrew word for faith, like you should have faith. But like, I didn't I guess I didn't quite understand really what that meant. And I, it just struck me once I started teaching at a pluralistic school that was named after one of the greatest Jewish theologians of the last kind of like century, um, that like, I never talked about God, like ever, like nobody in my community really like talked about God and like, what is God? And what does it mean to have a relationship with God? And what is like, 
Never. People talk all the time. You would say like, oh, how are you? You'd say like, oh, Baruch Hashem, right? Like, praise God. Like, I'm good. Like, it was, it was a throwaway and it was assumed. It was never talked about. And um, for me, it was, I mean, I think some people just have the God gene and some people just don't. Like, they, like I just like, I've always had, it's not even something I consciously engage with regularly because it's not really actively a part of the way most Orthodox Jews live their life. But like, I believe in God and I know that God, I feel and know that God has been with me and have as of late started thinking about like theology and Jewish theology and what are those implications? Um, but lots of people don't, they really It's don't. also, it's just, I feel like it's not socialized. It's just not part of, and, and I think one of the points that I would like to make is that, you know, as a scholar, right, of, of the Hebrew Bible and of, you know, biblical literature, um, the fact that it's not been central and it's not something that I think about, it also is, you know, differently structuring the kinds of questions I ask, because I'm not going to ask those kinds of questions because I, I'm, I'm less hung up or I'm less interested or, you know, it, I'm always interested in people. How are people living their life? And um, it's so fascinating to hear you say that. Cause I guess, I mean, we did talk about, I mean, how, how did we not talk about God? We learned the Bible, God's in the Bible everywhere. But it, I think it was a pretty unidimensional, very Maimonidean um, picture of God. So like very transcendent, very non-physical and it was very vague. And then like, I remember when that changed for me because I was on some panel at some point after I had already started teaching at Heschel and my thought about these things got a little bit more nuanced. Um, I was at a, a panel and somebody asked like, if you could speak to any character from the Torah, like who would you wanna talk to? And all the people on the panel before me said, you know, like Moses or like, oh, I wanna talk to like, you know, Rebecca. And I'm like, I wanna talk to God. And I literally <laughs> asked. Because the question is, who in the Bible would you want to talk to? And God's not a character in the Bible. Like, that's like that, I would have never thought to think, like to say that. And yet, when I relook at the Bible from like a different, maybe more theologically minded, like more God aware perspective, like God is absolutely an active actor like character participant in the stories and doesn't always act the same and doesn't always act at all and there's so much richness there that's been uncovered for me by actually thinking about god in a serious way um that just was not present in my education or upbringing um and i understand why i totally understand why right like you mentioned how like the experience of students learning Bible from these other kinds of perspectives, particularly source critical has been, has led to real crises of faith. Like when you're raised to believe in a very particular thing and your whole religious experience and practice is founded on assumptions like God and, you know, authorship of the Torah and authority of text. Like, and once you start questioning that, like things can really, really risk falling apart. Um, and yeah, you have a real Spinoza moment, you know? <laughs> Spinoza was, oh my God, I remember the first time I learned about who Spinoza was, I remember exactly where I was. And I was like, what is this? Um, <laughs> and it's been, it's been really interesting to go on these intellectual journeys um, and always want to come home, right? Like I always want to come home to my Orthodox 
community and family and feel part of it. And I do, I really, really do. And also once you learn these things, I mean, that's literally the definition of woke, right? You've woken up, you can't like close your eyes to me. <laughs> and it applies to like so many areas. It applies to the way that I experience my Jewish identity. You mentioned like the very, very beginning, like identity and like, race and what it means to be American. Like these things have, and God and theology, like these things have become so much more nuanced for me. And it does sometimes feel like I'm not an exile, but my body's in the right place and my heart's in the right place. But sometimes my mind is thinking <laughs> that don't really fit whatever else is happening around me, um, which is I have to, things interesting. <laughs> I'm just so curious. What is the response of your community to the fact that you are um, studying at a Christian divinity school? Um, so it's been overwhelmingly positive, mostly because I, I don't know, I don't think, I didn't know what a divinity school was until I applied to come to one. I don't think most people in my community um, necessarily know exactly what, like what it really means to be, what I, in divinity school, what the way I explain it is like, it's, it's Micha for Christians, right? It's like rabbinic order. <laughs> And they're like, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm like, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's not, you know, but okay. <laughs> positive. Um, and then the people who, it's interesting because I've actually found like the people who understand what it means and who know that it means I'm like studying Bible outside of like a traditional context or who know that I'm studying Christian theology. Um, the people who know what that means, who are attuned and who are looking for someone to talk to, whose mind is in the same place mine is, even though their body and their heart is in the same place mine is. Um, it's almost like a code word. Like people come out of the woodwork and they're like, can we talk? And I'm like, I know what you want to talk about. <laughs> it's really interesting to like find people in my community who want to be Orthodox and are and are there and are fully part of it and also are troubled and question the same things that I am questioning and thinking about. And it's actually been so validating for me. And I think also for them, like as a religious leader, if I'm here and I'm studying these things, like it can be done. Um, and I just, I, I hope that that's like hopeful for people, but um, I also think the fact that it's Yale, like makes everybody not care about whatever school comes out. <laughs> You're at Yale, like, oh, that's fine, great. <laughs> you're, you're at Yale Rabbinical School. <laughs> We've just renamed YDS. I don't know how comfortable everyone would be with that. <laughs> this has been a Fireside Chat, featuring Professor Jackie Vaintrub and student Ora Weinbach, sponsored by the Spiritual Formation and Practice of Faith Committee. Thank you for listening. <laughs>